Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 122 of the podcast, and this episode is about 10 underappreciated survival skills. So stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft This episode is brought to you by the Hunter's Journey online course and community. Have you ever thought about getting into hunting but don't even know where to begin? Have you ever felt intimidated about getting into it because, well, you don't have people that want to support this exploration of food of yours? Or maybe you grew up in the hunting community but haven't felt connected to the morals and ethics of those that you know who hunt. For the last three years, my good friend Chris Gilmore and I have been running an online hunting course that has grown and blossomed into one of the most beautiful communities that I've ever been involved with. With access to hundreds of hours of videos, both short and sweet, as well as long and detailed, virtual hunt camps and classes, as well as an online growing community where you can share your experiences, get help with your challenges, and celebrate your successes. The Hunter's Journey is everything I ever wished for in my hunting community. And now it can be your hunting community. To learn more and register, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com. And if you register today, use the promo code DRAGONFLY75, and you can save $75 off of registration. I know Chris and I would both love to have you, and I know the community is excited to join you on your hunter's journey. Now, as per usual with these episodes of the podcast, it's not top 10 things. These are not the 10 that you must know, the only 10 this is, and there's no numerical listing of like grade of ones more important than 10. This is just 10 items on a list to think about. This episode's focus is on underappreciated survival skills. We will focus a lot when we talk about bushcraft and survival in general on things like firecraft and knowing a hundred ways to make fire. We'll focus on making shelter, carving spoons. For some reason. Um, Plant ID. And all these are important skills. But there's some skills that we just don't seem to care about as much. Or we don't take as much time to think about. Or take as much time to train in. And so these are the 10 for this episode. These are 10 skills that I consider very underappreciated that we need to focus more on. And with no further ado, we're going to start the list. Number one. The ability to light fire in the worst conditions possible. Rain, high winds, darkness, cold, hunger, exhaustion, without any modern assistance. These are really important things to train in. A lot of people train in firecraft on a survival course or on a bushcraft class or out on their camping trip and they'll just make the fire and they're done. They're not thinking about all the other moments where they may need to light a fire and it's hard to light. That is when you need fire the most, when it's cold, when it's wet, when it's windy, when it's just nasty out, or you're scared, or you're alone, or it's dark out, or it's getting dark. You're you're, you're hungry, you're tired, you're thirsty, and suddenly all these little variables impact your success rate. Yeah, you can make feather sticks when you've got the perfect straight grain uh, piece of cedar, or pine, or oak, or ash. And yeah, you can get that ferro rod to work every single time when you've got the right kind of striker or knife or the ferro rod's in good condition or you're, you know, well hydrated and well rested. When all those things get taken out of the equation and you stop having those good things help, those good variables, negative variables sink in. It is harder to light a fire when you're tired. It is harder to light a fire when you're exhausted after, let's say, a 10K hike. It's harder to light a fire when you're hungry. Now add external variables of rain, wind, snow, wet ground, wet firewood. How are you going to get that fire to light when you really, really need it if you don't train in those conditions? Growing up, learning under Gino Ferry and then later Morris Kohansky, it was hammered home to us. Like You need to learn how to light fires in the worst possible scenarios. If you can't, you're never going to be able to light the fire when those scenarios are present. 
and I remember I was like mm, 20, 21 when I made my very first bow drill fire in a downpour with no shelter. Up until then, all my bow drill fires had been outside in good conditions or cut under cover in bad conditions, which is really the best way to light a fire. If you can have some sort of shelter over it, uh, whether that's a tarp or a shelter that's been constructed that's made and designed to protect fire but also protect you from the fire from getting out of control, yada, 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 that's the perfect scenario. But you're not always guaranteed a perfect scenario. Sometimes the only rain protection you have for your fire is your own body acting like an umbrella while that fire starts to kindle and come together and come to flame. That is not ideal, but that is the reality of bushcraft and survival skills. So learning how to protect the fire and gather the right amount of material in bad conditions, knowing how to read the weather and learning how to read the wood and knowing where you're going to find dry wood and go from there. Now, this can be with bow drill or other friction fires. This can be with flint and steel, ferro rods, or with a match or lighter. They're all challenging in wet conditions. And some people make it uh, an objective of theirs to practice as many firecraft methods as they can, but they don't test them in the worst scenarios. And those worst case scenarios are where survival skills are paramount. So the first one on the list, not the most important, but definitely an important underappreciated skill is lighting fire in all conditions. Lighting fire and practicing your firecraft in all possible conditions. Uh, when I was first really getting into this stuff and becoming an instructor in bushcraft and survival skills, I would catch myself waking up at like, let's say two in the morning, uh, to get out of my shelter, get out of my lean to whatever it may be to go relieve myself, you know, pee, poo, all that kind of stuff, get some more water, whatever. I would, I'd wake up around two, three in the morning and I'd be kind of hazy and tired. And then I would remind myself, this is the perfect opportunity to light a fire. I should rekindle my fire if it's gone out or, or, you know, just start up a small twig fire and then push it into the embers of my fire to get it nice and hot again. Practice in those unideal conditions. You can go and check your weather app and be like, okay, it's supposed to be really wet and cold on Saturday. Well, I'm off Saturday. Let's go out and light a fire. Even if it's just in your backyard at your fire pit, your chimnea, your your barbecue, whatever it may be. Practice your fire lighting in the worst conditions. High winds. Very difficult to get a match or a lighter to work in high winds. But you got to practice that. you got to practice protecting that open flame. Even when you get flint and steel, the, the, the ember that you create in the char cloth or the chaga fungus or whatever it may be, milkweed ovum, it actually gets assisted by wind. But once you get that tinder bundle or kindling bundle burning, those flames are very fragile when they first start. And so wind can help at first and then it can put it out. So learning how to work with the wind, learning how to work with the rain, learning how to work with the cold and being able to insulate your fire with, uh, with wood below where you're going to be putting your kindling is really important. All these different skills come together. And there's kind of a secondary part to this equation and that is i think and i've had this talk with a lot of people and i've had this philosophy for a long time now out of all the survival skills you can learn with firecraft the most important in my opinion is learning how to protect a lighter whether it's a bic lighter or a zippo or whatever learning how to protect that lighter from not working is crucial and I carry an Exotac uh, fire sleeve. It's a little piece of silicone rubber that goes over a Bic lighter and it has a hard plastic lid with three gaskets built into it. And I've tested those things in all conditions. The only thing that they don't work well at in is cold weather because lighters just don't work well in cold weather unless you keep it close to your body. But it keeps out rain. It keeps out snow. It keeps out the wind. It keeps out debris. But also it keeps you from stepping, every time you step with a Bic lighter in your pocket or any lighter in your pocket that's got one of those classic plungers for getting the fuel out, um, every time you step, your clothing or your leg are depressing that plunger. They're pressing the button 
and you're letting out a little bit of gas every single step. So when you put them into a fire sleeve by ExoTac or into a container of some sort that is tough enough to keep it from being depressed, you're preserving your lighter's function for much longer. That weird sound is my dog clearing their throat. Don't worry. Um, that is That is crucial to me. And to me, it's a sign of a wise woods wanderer when they protect their fire kit, whether it's a flint and steel kit, their bow drill kit, their lighter, their matches, whatever. That, to me, is a sign that this person has some wisdom, not just knowledge. And so that's the first one on the list, is the ability to light a fire in the worst conditions and building off of that, learning to protect your lighter is a really important one. Number two on the list, finding and making water safe to drink. And this is the this is the reality. Like everybody goes goes, yeah, you can just boil water. Sure, maybe you are not in a in a situation where you want to light a fire, or maybe you're not in a position where you have a metal container to boil the water in easily. What other ways can you make that water safe to drink? Can you bring a water filter with you? Do you know what kind of filter you're carrying? Do you understand how that works? You go back to one of our earlier episodes of the podcast, Wild Water. We break down protozoa, hell months, or worms viruses and bacterium in detail and how to attack them in different ways so that's an important skill to me i know it's not as sexy or romantic as making a fire making a shelter using an axe using a saw and a knife carving things skinning game making traps hunting fishing i know but you will die sooner from dehydration than you will ever die from starvation like Generally speaking, you're, you're, you're more likely to die of dehydration and knowing how to make that water safe to consume, making it potable water is so important, but we don't give it as much attention as we should. I take the time I've had waterborne pathogens on multiple occasions in my life and I've become very anal retentive when it comes down to the quality of my drinking water. I'm very focused on it when I'm at a camp, when I'm on a course, when I'm in the field, when I'm hunting, anything. I protect my drinking water very, very much. So I'm trying to think of like a good way to describe it. Like It's critical to me that I protect my water. And I bring multiple ways to make that water safe to drink. And, oh, my cat's here now. She's mad at the dog. Hopefully they don't get in a fight while we're talking. So that's the second one on the list, is finding and making water. That's the other part, is finding water. We're very blessed here in Ontario, where I live, where we're right beside a bunch of lakes and rivers, streams, wetlands of all types. That's not always the case. I've been in eastern Ontario, where there's not as much water. And you need to deal with that. You're, you know, 5, 6K back in the bush, and it's just bush. There's no real water sources. Can you find water? Do you know how to find that water? Tracker, are you scratching your your ear? Making these weird sounds. <laughs> the dog is very hyper tonight. He's He wanted to go for an ATV run. I haven't had a chance to take him on a run yet. But finding and making the water. Okay, buddy. Okay. Chill out. Oh, you chill out too. Um, those are Those are like truly life-saving skills that we just don't put as much consideration into. We bring a metal cup and we assume we're just going to boil water in the metal cup. We bring a stainless steel water bottle or a billy can with us and we just assume we're going to boil water. In hot conditions, I don't want to boil water. Like, when it's like 30 degrees out Celsius... That was such a weird sound. He just shook his head really hard. Sorry, I'm being very entertained by the dog. It's like almost 3 in the morning. It is 3 in the morning while I'm recording this. Um, clearly, my insomnia is kicking in. Anyways, um, it, when it's like 30 degrees out, I don't want to drink boiled water. I want to drink filtered water. That's just because I don't want to be drinking or waiting for that water to cool down let alone drink it when it's warm or tepid. It's the least ideal situation for me when it's hot out. I'm built like a woolly mammoth. And like a woolly mammoth, I'm going to die in the heat. So I need that water cool and refreshing. I don't need it hot as hell. So 
yes, boiling water works. It does bring those items. But learn beyond that. Learn how to filter water with equipment that you can purchase or learn how to filter water on the landscape with the uh, water filter tripod method, with the hollow log method, with the xylem filter methods, all that kind of stuff. Learn those skills. Learn all of them. Learn how to use different chemicals to treat your water. Learn all those different possibilities, just like fire lighting. Take water as seriously as everybody in bushcraft takes fire lighting. Please, for the love of God and all that is holy, protect yourself with your water. So that's why it's the second one on the list. Again, there's no hierarchy of on the list, but it is definitely an underappreciated skill that I think more of us need to take much more seriously. Number three on the list, I think, is really important. And I think it's a really good one. But I know some people disagree, but I think this one's definitely a priority in my, in my books. Just because of what we have to do out on the landscape. And it's connected to orienteering, but it's not orienteering. A lot of people learn how to use a compass, learn how to make a shadow stick, learn how to make an Ottomani sun compass learn how to read the stars and read the sun's pattern and all that kind of stuff. And they can gauge where the animals move and all that kind of stuff. And they can figure out their direction. But there's two other com uh, components there that I think are just as important. And they're part of number three. And that is the ability to gauge time and distance without modern amenities. This can include pace counting when you're walking a distance and being able to gauge how many kilometers or miles you've traveled all the way to measuring out the height of a standing tree, measuring tracks with the finger and hand widths of your hand, hand time, and we'll get into all this stuff in a second. But th these are all what I consider really important skills that we kind of just push to the wayside and kind of forget about. I think they're really useful. So pace counting, we've talked about in orienteering before, and we've talked a lot before in the past. Pace counting is one of the like main components of orienteering but everybody focuses more on the compass to me i need to be able to gauge how far i'm walking before i make my alterations to my bearing right and to figure that out i pace count for me the best way to learn this and then you graduate from there is you mark out a 10 meter distance on flat ground so this could be a school gymnasium this could be a soccer field this could be a parking lot this could be your front yard, wherever you have an area that's at minimum 10 yards long. Measure it out and walk your normal pace. Don't try to walk faster. Don't try to take big steps. Take your normal pace. And as you do it, start on your left foot back, right foot forward. And the next step is your left foot. That's one full pace. Every time your left foot touch the ground or right foot, however you want to start it, that is one pace from left to left. So you go left, right, left, that is one pace. Left, right, left, that is now two paces. Left, right, left, that is three paces. For me, the goal is to figure out how many paces does it take to cross one whole 10 meter distance. And from there you can extrapolate. And that's and on flat ground you start with. So for me it's eight paces to cross 10 meters. Eight paces. I've got short legs for how big I am. Take those eight paces, now I extrapolate to 100 meters. Okay, well, it'll be 80 paces. When I get to a kilometer, 1,000 meters, that will be 800 paces. And it very quickly boils down to that. I just can do quick math, and I can gauge how far I've traveled, right? <coughs> and I'm pretty good at it on most flat ground. It doesn't change much. Now, once you get really the hang of it and you get really good at gauging it on, you know, slightly uneven flat ground, so like a regular park instead of a flat soccer field or hockey rink or wherever you're working that was perfectly flat, now you graduate up to 10 meters on rougher terrain, wooded parkland kind of things, savannas, uh, people's yards. Then you change it on gradient. So... Find a hill, measure out 10 meters, walk up it, and take note how many steps, or sorry, how many paces in that distance. It may change going uphill versus going downhill. Learning how to pace count can help you, A, 
gauge distance so that you don't get lost, which is a major skill for survival. B, it's going to be able to help you gauge out distances for other things. If you can learn how to take paces, you can measure out shelters, you can measure out campsites, you can measure out the distance of a shot placement. Uh, let's say we're getting into hunting and you want to zero in your gun while you're out in the field. Maybe you have a rangefinder, maybe you don't. But you're nervous that your gun isn't holding zero right now. Okay, pace out 100 meters, take the shot. Or pace out 25 meters if you're going by the other system of, of uh, zeroing. But whatever way that you zero your gun, you now have a way to gauge out that distance. Right? So there's so many different directions you can take pace counting to be beneficial to you. You just got to practice with it. Not just on flat surfaces, but on uneven surfaces, on angled surfaces, all that kind of stuff. That's just pace counting. We haven't even got to the rest of it. How to measure out the height of a standing tree. Take a stick that is about as long as, I usually go fingertip to elbow. Some people make the stick as long as our arm to fingertip, from like armpit to fingertip. I find it seems to be the most accurate for me, elbow to fingertip, but I got big old arms, so I might be, you know, biased. Walk out from the tree until that stick completely covers the tree in profile when you're looking at the at the tree the stick is now as tall as the tree and then you tilt it 90 degrees to the left or right and that gives you the height of the tree on the ground you have a partner then walk from the height of the tree uh, from the base of the tree to the tip of the stick from what you're looking at from your perspective and they can pace count that and tell you how tall the tree is this sounds like a nifty little uh, like you know party trick but what it's really beneficial for is when you're felling trees, now you know how far that tree has an impact. You know the impact zone of that tree. If you know that that tree is now 90 feet tall, you know that at minimum you need to be like 100 plus feet away from that tree when it starts to fall when you cut it. Right? And then from there you can gauge out where is it going to domino into other trees and can we clear those out of the way and yada yada yada. It becomes a very, very useful technique, uh, tactic to have out there in your back pocket. Measuring out tracks with your fingers and hand width. Uh, sometimes you don't have a ruler on you. Sometimes when you're out there and you're trying to gauge, is this a coyote? Is this a domestic dog? Is this a wolf? you got to learn how to measure with your fingers and measure with your hand width. Trying to figure out if that is a big old black bear or an even bigger brown bear, you got to learn how to measure tracks. And if you have only just your hands... You always have your hands on you, I hope, for most of us. You know, that was kind of actually ableist of me to say, so I'm going to retract that. If you have two functioning hands, or at least a functioning hand, and you're out in the field, you should know how to use that hand to measure things, whether it's tracks or the width of certain projects you're working on. I'll use my fingertips or my finger breadth, the width of my fingers, to measure out the length of the arms of a pair of tongs I'm going to carve out a piece of red willow or a piece of hickory. You know, that's a simple one. If I'm going to use, you know, six finger widths on this arm, I better make sure that other arm is six finger widths long as well. Measuring that way is a pretty old, archaic, esoteric way of measuring things. That's why horses, that's how horses are measured, by hand breadths. So all that kind of stuff is really important. The other one is measuring time or gauging time. If you know when sunrise or sunset is, you can gauge within a fairly close, you know, modicum of accuracy with just your hand width. Each finger, when you extend your hand fully from your body, it is about uh, 15 degrees from bottom of the hand to the top of your hand as a fist when you're sticking it out. That is about 15 degree angle from your eye. And the world is 360 degrees, you know, and there's 24 hours in a day. And oddly enough, 15 times 24, let me pull it up on my calculator to make sure I'm doing my math right here, because I've done it wrong before. Pull up the calculator, 15 times 24 is 360. So we know that if we have a 15 degree angle between the base of our hand and the top of our hand, when we make a fist or just spread our hand out to look off towards the sun, we have an angle of approximately one hour, right? Now, it'll be a little bit different. Some people's arms are shorter. Some people's hands are bigger. You got to learn how to accurize and gauge the time. But if you know that your hand is about, the width of your hand 
is about one hour and you have four fingers again this is assuming you have a full set of fingers on a on your hand or at least on a hand spread them out sorry no don't spread them spread out your arm stretch out your arm facing the horizon and you now have one two three four fingers right on that hand that is approximately one hour divide of hour by four you have 15 minutes so you can actually get quite accurate with the time with just your hand if the sun is two hand widths away from the horizon that's approximately two hours from sunset and if you know when sun rises and you can measure out two hands from the horizon let's say it's six in the morning is when sunrise is right now it's closer to 7 30 in the morning where i live um so let's go with that 7 30 in the morning is sunrise bring my hand out oh the sun's a little higher than that measure it with my next hand oh it's exactly two hand breaths from the horizon well that means it must be 9 30 in the morning but this is really important when it comes to afternoon into evening measuring out how much time you have left regardless of whether you know what time the sun sets or not you will know how many hours of sunlight you have left or minutes of sunlight you have left most survival scenarios begin in the morning but most survivors don't realize they're in a survival scenario until the sun is setting and so knowing how much time you have left to get a game plan put together and start making yourself survive that's important that's really important to me so i know these are not as important to some other folks but this is the ability to gauge time and distance without modern amenities is crucial in my opinion so even though it's underappreciated by some, I think it's really important. The fourth one on the list is the ability to forecast weather. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still working on this over the years. I'm still trying to figure out what a Nimbus cloud, cumulonimbus, seronimbus, all that kind of stuff. I'm still trying to understand all of that. I don't fully grasp it myself. We're all learning still, okay? We're all still learning. But knowing what's going to happen in a day or two or in a couple of hours, weather-wise, that's really, you know, crucial and important. So we should be focusing on that. For me, it's like knowing what the clouds are doing or what they represent, knowing what the wind is telling you, knowing what the birds and insect activities are all saying. If you're sitting by a fire and it's midday, And suddenly the smoke from your fire comes down back towards the ground and starts circling counterclockwise. And the mosquitoes are biting really bad. Even like mosquitoes can be bad in May, June, July. I get that. But let's say they're like, like suddenly they just get really bad. These are indicators that there's a big storm coming, especially if the mosquitoes are biting really hard in the early morning, like worse than you've noticed the day before kind of thing. And you start noticing that the smoke of your fire is hanging low or it's billowing clockwise, counterclockwise. Usually counterclockwise is what I notice. You may want to batten down the hatches. You may want to get your tarp lower to the ground to protect stuff. You may want to get things put away. You may want to make sure that your tent is set up in a place that's going to be away from widow makers and away from lightning strike risks. You may want to make sure everything is safe. You may only have an hour. You may have a couple hours, but you may only have an hour. You may only have a few minutes. Uh, when the derecho hit here at the Powell, we talked about it in one of our re previous episodes, uh, where I think it was titled Caleb and Ryan or Canadian Bushcraft Survived the Derecho. We talk about like it, like the weather changed before the storm ever hit. Things got different. Things got weird. Uh, the previous derecho that I was in, up in Wakwemakong First Nation in 2018 at the Wiki Powwow, that was a derecho as well. Massive band of tornadoes and strong winds and fast winds. Um, I knew minutes, like let's say five, ten minutes before the storm hit, I knew something was going to go bad because I could hear rumbling when there was blue sky. And that's not normal. And then I noticed the sky turning green in the northern part of the sky, northern quadrant of the sky. It was turning green. And I lived in Wyoming. Green sky means tornadoes. So I was packing, getting ready to go when this happened and the storm hit. Um, knowing how to gauge the weather and read the weather and forecast the weather. 
there, there's no one on this planet that can tell me that that is not an important skill, but how many of us take the time to study it in detail and fully get intimate with weather forecasting? Very few of us. That's number four. The fifth one on the list is the ability to get over hunger. This is a reality of survival, and in no way, shape, or form am I trying to say, like, you know, at home, on a daily basis, you should just get over your hunger and, and let yourself, you know, become, you know, ha- basically I'm trying to say this is no way, shape, or form judging or casting shade on anyone that's dealing with, with an eating disorder. If you are, we support you and we want you to get better. Talk to mental health workers. Get through processes to help yourself. I've got several friends and loved ones who have gone through eating disorders of all kinds. I have my own eating disorder because I keep putting weight on because of stress eating and everything else. Trust me, I get it. But in a survival scenario, as we were talking about earlier, food is not a priority. But hunger can be a big distraction from those priorities. You need a good night's sleep. You need to be well hydrated. You need to be warm. You need to be dry. You need all those kinds of things. You don't need food until all of your other priorities are met. But you can start to lose sleep when the hunger pangs hit. So if you're not used to being hungry, if you're not understanding what goes through your mind when you're two or three days hungry, you're going to have a much harder time out in the field. So as much as I don't want to encourage any kind of what could be identified as eating disorders, intermittent fasting... And plain old fasting can be beneficial to train yourself for survival scenarios so you know how to handle that stress, handle that distraction while you focus on your main priorities. And once those priorities are dealt with, you know, you've got plenty of fire when you've got a fire going, you've got a good, adequate shelter that's going to keep you dry, keep you warm, and keep you well slept. You've got decent amounts of water and you can make them the water more up, you can make more water potable afterwards. Now we can start looking at food, but we got to get those priorities dealt with first. So learning how to deal with that distraction of hunger, I think is a very crucial skill for the first few days of a survival scenario. Further down the road, getting calories back becomes the priority. But at the beginning, it's all about the main priorities of survival. Number six of the list is risk management and mitigation. And Ryan and I are working on this still. It's going to be a, it's a big episode that we're still developing. Um, risk management and mitigation. If you go to the Global Bushcraft Symposium uh, website from 2019, the, the Alberta Symposium, not the one that just happened in Great Britain, um, Andre-Francois Bourbeau had a great lecture on risk mitigation and risk management amazing lecture on it and i don't want to you know reiterate everything he said but i want to make it very clear these are skills you need to know you need to be able to say okay there's some risks here there's some risks here that we need to take very seriously and hi john wagger you're messaging me while we're recording and i hope you hear this on the podcast (laughs) um There's major risks that happen in all situations. There's minor risks and major risks. And we have to read those and perceive those risks. And then A, decide, are they real risks or are they just perceived risks? Then we have to go, how risky is it? We have to look at it from how much reward are we going to receive if we risk this? How much reward are we going to not receive if we risk this? And you got to be able to weigh your options. And then from there mitigate the risk as much as possible to make sure everyone comes out safe. That's the very layman's term, Reader's Digest breakdown of what risk management and risk mitigation is. To understand it better, I highly recommend going to Caramat Wilderness Ways on YouTube and looking at the Global Bushcraft Symposium 2019 André-Francois Bourbeau uh, video. And I think you can find it on the GBS uh, website as well. Absolutely fascinating, absolutely amazing. Love it to death. Andre-Francois Bourbeau is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world of bushcraft and survival. I will always recommend what he's talking about. Number seven on the list 
is one that we all know we should be taking more seriously. We should be taking more time to train in, taking more light uh, courses on. And that's first aid. And part of that is, again, we go back to this argument of like a lot of these skills aren't as sexy, <clears throat> but they are crucial. I've seen everything from people saying things like, my first aid kid is my last aid. Cool. Glad to know that you're macho. Glad to know that you're tough. That's not helping anyone. That's not helping anyone at all. First aid and trained in, training in first aid and carrying a good, well-stocked first aid kit is nothing to take lightly. This is your insurance kit. This is your insurance package. First aid kits and first aid training as deep as you can go. Wilderness first aid, level one or two, and then all the way up to wilderness first responder courses. In my opinion, the more training you take in that subject matter, expanding yourself all the way up you can, that is your insurance package. That is the insurance you have when you go camping and go out in the woods hunting, foraging, whatever. It is a proper training in first aid and a properly stocked well-stocked first aid kit there's not much else i can say about that without beating a dead horse there but please take this more seriously please go and take all the training you can on the subject matter from professionals who are much more qualified to teach you on that stuff than i ever will be please 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 go and get the training on this stuff St. John's Ambulance, Williams, uh, Williams Medical Associates, uh, Red Cross, take all the training you can on this kind of stuff, please, and practice it, get recertified, and this goes into, you know, your life-saving training, if you go into Bronze Cross, Orca, all that kind of stuff, get all the certification you can and keep reserting, keep it up to date, because it can save your life or a friend's life. So why would we not want to have this in our mental toolkit and in our physical toolkit? All right. That's all I'm going to say on the subject matter. That was a short one. Number eight. And again, this is one that we will kind of dive into, but we don't expand on a lot. Uh, and that is knots and rope and, and rope work. So everybody will know like, you know, a handful of little knots. And hitches. I carry in my mental toolkit about 25 to 30 for any given situation. I have like 25 or 30 knots and hitches in my brain in any day of the week. Clove hitches and their family, like constrictor knot and such. Uh, and of course the half hitch, which is part of the clove hitch family in my opinion. All the way to the timber hitch, the Avenc slippery hitch. All the way to the jam knot, the proper Canada jam knot, not that slip knot that everybody shows on TikTok and, and YouTube. Oh my God, that drives me up the wall. That is not the proper Canada jam knot. And I will say that to the day I die. If you make two overhand knots with one intersecting with the other end of the cord, you have created a slip knot. That's it. That is not a jam knot. What you need to do is back it up with a half hitch that locks and jams permanently into your cord that is what makes a proper Canada jam knot not two overhand knots one with the rope intersecting at the end that is just a slip knot I'm getting on a tie right here anyways this is what happens when it gets to like 3 30 in the morning exactly 3 30 in the morning while I say that um <laughs> Learn as many knots as you can. Have like your own top 10 knots. We might do a, a, a knot episode. It's hard to describe knots without a visual aid, uh, which is why we haven't really done knots in detail on the podcast. But find 10 knots that you are and hitches that you really, really can dedicate your bushcraft to and practice them on a regular basis. For me, I'm just going to roughly list what I use. Clove hitch and or constrictor knot. That's the first one. Taut line hitch for, you know, getting the lines taut on my guy lines for my tarp shelters or tents and whatnot. Uh, slippery hitch. The Avang slippery hitch is number three. Uh, bowling. Bowling or bow lines. Really, really good one to know. Uh, timber hitch. 
which is a half hitch with a few extra wraps. That's a great one to know that they're they're so useful. Yeah, they're that one. The Canada Jam Knot is number six for sure. And the last four I kind of interchange depending on where I am and what I'm doing. Um, the Kellick Hitch I find really useful for making anchors when there's just rocks around. So if I have to tie down a tent or tie down a tarp and I'm on Canada Shield, I'll just go get a bunch of rocks, do Kellick Hitches on them, and spread them out. And that's my, my stakes in the ground for the, for the trip. And if I'm making an anchor, if I need to tie something down, the Kellick hitch is a very useful hitch system to hold things tight. Um, beyond that, my... Oh, I'm trying to just think off the top of my head here real quick. Um, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a few other ones as well. Of course, the trucker hitch comes to mind almost immediately when I'm trying to set up a ridge line, especially I'll use a trucker hitch. But also when I'm trying to just lash things down onto a toboggan or a sled, I'll use modified trucker hitches to do that. Uh, there's also like the four-point tie-off, which is half hitch, half hitch, half hitch, half hitch, which is how a lot of people try to tie, tighten up their ridge lines. I prefer the trucker hitch. It is very, very tight, keeps everything nice, and like you can bounce a dime off my tarp shelters because they are tight. Um... Beyond those ones, there's a few others here and there. Of course, the classic half hitch, the classic slip knot, as well as um, what I uh, what I believe is called a zeppelin bend. And the zeppelin bend is a hitching method of attaching two different ropes or materials together of differing differing sizes. And that's what I like about it. Is like let's say I have some thick static line like climbing rope that I've been using for my bear hang. And it rips one night, it tears one night, maybe a bear chewed in half. I gotta get it back up there, and all I have is paracord around. A Zeppelin bend allows me to attach parachute cord to a thicker, like thumb thick or three eighths of an inch thick rope. That's important to know. Like that kind of stuff is important to know. And there's so many others out there. Again, there's like 20 or 30 that are just floating in my head at any given moment uh, that I can employ if I just look at them. There's so many different ways to use rope tricks. And that's the other things like rope work or rope tricks are my next part that a lot of people don't think about. Things like how to hank up your rope so it doesn't spill all over your bag, get loose and jumbled and tangled. The butterfly hank solves that. I learned that originally from Kelly Harlton. Uh, I know it's not uh, per se his invention, but he's the one that popularized it. I think in the bushcraft community was, was Kelly Harlton, who we're hoping to get on the podcast in the new year. Uh, the tree surgeon throw which is how to throw a rope without any additional weights attached to the rope. So you don't have to attach a rock to it. You don't have to attach a throwing bag to it. You don't have to attach a stick to it. It's how you bundle the rope so it becomes its own throwing weight to get up over a branch. Important for doing bear hangs, if you trust bear hangs. Uh, important for being able to get a rope over any high obstacle. Let's say if we're trying to <clears throat> get up a tree, if we're doing tree arborist work, or if we're trying to lift things up off the ground with a winch system and we need to get it up and over like we're hanging a deer or we're hanging a moose, uh, you want to get them up off the ground, you got to be able to throw a rope up over a tree branch to either set up your rig or just to pull them up over the tree. And that's the next one, the flip-flop winch, the Spanish windless winch, the, the Flemish or Finnish winch, all these different methods of winching with rope. These are rope tricks or rope work. Learn them. They are going to help you. They Believe me on this. They're going to help you much more than if you know how to make bow drill fires with 17 different species of wood. That The rope work is going to save your life or at least make your life easier to live in the wilderness much more than knowing that stuff. And I'm being very blunt here. I'm someone that's been practicing bow drill for well over 20 years, practicing hand drill for well over 15 Um fire plow, fire pistons, all kinds of friction fires. I've been practicing for years and years and years. Knowing your knots and don't, knowing how to do rope work is much more important, but we underappreciate it. Nine, and this is a completely different direction than everything else we've talked about, and this is a scenario-specific skill. Community building. I know, I know, it sounds absurd, 
but a lot of survival scenarios that have happened in history and have happened in recent times have been people together, knowing how to work as a team. Ryan did an amazing episode on leadership skills over well over a year ago now. I highly recommend checking out that episode. Listen to the Shackleton episode as well and compare it to the Franklin Expedition episode. It's completely different. And it's eye-opening when you realize how important it is to build up your community. This is for emergency survival of people stranded in the wilderness. This is important for people that are stuck in a storm that has destroyed their neighborhood. Learning how to build up your community and work together as a team, it's, it's critical. It is the only way that you can survive in a group, is working together and making your group becoming a community. That's why it's on the list. As silly as it sounds, that's why it's on the list, because it saves lives all the time. Number 10, and this one is again kind of out of left field to a lot of folks, is the ability to instill calmness, both in yourself and other people. When an emergency happens, we need cool, rational thinking that can work quickly. Being able to focus and dispel or subvert or compress your fears and stresses while you focus on the task at hand is really important. This is not saying bottle up all your emotions by any means. This is saying when an emergency comes along, you should be trained enough to remain calm and be able to do what needs to be done and hear other people and not let the adrenaline and the fear take over. This is critical. This is life-saving. This is a true survival skill and is underappreciated. Whether you learn how to do this through meditation or religious or spiritual enlightenment and enrichment of your life, whatever it is, training in survival courses again and again and again and going into extreme scenarios again and again and again until you've become, you know, accustomed to them. Whatever method it is that you go through, going and doing cold water immersion exercises and such, whatever it may be, learning to meditate like a true blue Buddhist monk, whatever it may be, learn it, use it, and make sure you know how to read the signs of triggering traumatic moments so that you can control the situation as best as you can and mitigate the problems. That was number 10 on the list. This is a very short episode of the podcast. Uh, again, I'm just going to run down the list now, the list again for you so that you're aware of what they are. Just to reiterate, number one, the ability to light fire in the worst conditions, rain, darkness, cold, hunger, exhaustion, without any modern assistance. And part two of that is learning how to protect a lighter in all those conditions. Number two, finding and making water safe to drink. Number three, the ability to gauge time and distance without modern amenities. Number four, the ability to forecast weather. Number five, the ability to get over hunger. Number six, risk management and mitigation. Number seven, first aid. Number eight, knots and rope work. Number nine, community building. And number ten, the ability to instill calmness. With all of those skills... Now where to you, I highly recommend you start taking classes on these things, training in your off time, doing everything you can to enrich your mind. Remember, your brain, your mind is the most dangerous weapon you could possibly wield, but it only works when it's fully loaded. Your mental toolkit is much more important than your physical toolkit. Learn how to deal with risk. Learn how to deal with stress. Learn how to deal with hunger. Learn every possible way you can work with the tools and skills you have in all conditions and in all situations. The more you train for real, true blue emergencies, wilderness survival, being stranded, machine breaks down, get lost, derecho storms, ice storms, all that kind of stuff. The more you can train and prepare yourself in all levels of skill, the better off you and your loved ones will be without having to build up fear and think that you have to go full prepper mode. You can just be 
someone who is qualified and skilled enough to take care of everybody. And really, that's the most important part of it all to me. That's what got me into survival skills. Is what got me into teaching this stuff is making sure people can take care of themselves. And so hopefully this has helped give you some insight, if not enlightened you. Hopefully this episode has helped enrich you and gives you some ideas of where to grow your skills beyond carving spoons, sharpening knives, knocking down trees with axes, making fires, especially upside down fires. Everybody loves their upside down fires. Just do a long, long fire. I don't get this whole upside down fire craze. Anyways, with all that out of the way, the last thing I want to say is I want to appreciate and I want to show my appreciation. Thank you all for listening. Huge shout out to our supporters at Patreon like Renee, like Martin, like Nelson, like Chris, like Christine, all the amazing people at Patreon. You keep the lights on here. You keep the dogs fed. You keep the ducks fed. You keep me and Rye being able to get up on these trips to be able to make all these recordings and do all this content. You are why Canadian Bushcraft is still moving forward after all these years of inactivity regarding courses. And the good news is, right around the corner, 2023, we'll be announcing our new schedule. Canadian Bushcraft is back, baby. We have classes coming up in 2023, starting hopefully in January, going all year round with whole new facilities, whole new places to teach at whole bunch of stuff going on we've been working on for months honestly years to get to where we are now we're excited to announce that we will be having the calendar announced in early january 2023 for the 2023-2024 schedule that's right two years of our schedule will be announced in january of 2023 so and it'll be first announced to our patrons at patreon because they get first dibs on classes and everything else that we do goes to patreon first because those people over at patreon those amazing beautiful people like the names i just mentioned keep us moving forward and we want to give them support back for all the support they give us so if you want to join the community for as little as a coffee a month go over to patreon.com slash canadian bushcraft join the uh, dragonfly nation become a supporter you're gonna be getting a lot of kickbacks we've been kind of quiet on the on patreon the last couple months because we've been busy trying to get all this stuff ready but we're now ready and a lot of stuff's coming down the pipeline we're very excited about. So check it all over the, over there at patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. And if you're already a supporter at Patreon, thank you. You're awesome. We love you. And with everyone else is tuning in, even if you are not a Patreon Patreon or not planning to join us on Patreon, thank you for le- listening to this episode. We love you. We appreciate you. We hope you're doing well in early December of 2022. We hope winter is slowly creeping up gently so that it doesn't catch you unawares like a try to in November. We appreciate all of you. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week with another episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast.